Good morning. This is Mission Sunday. Aren't you lucky? You got a tall pastor in your pulpit today. Today I want to unpack the invitation to the Missio Dei. What is the mission of God and why is it important to understand from the biblical text the significance of the mission of God? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to our text this morning. We will be in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 in your pew Bible, that is page 836. Church, listen carefully. This is the word of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boats mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This ends the reading of God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read will not pass away. Let's begin with a moment of silence and prayer. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart, Lord, be pleasing to you this morning. Amen. This morning, when looking at the mission of God, we see that Jesus calls these four people to come and join him. So let me ask you this. If you were here today to build a team of highly effective decision makers, leaders, prominent people, whom would you choose? Would you select the biggest and the brightest brains from MIT, Stanford, Virginia Tech, UVA? I got to put them two together. I realize that in Virginia, you got to do that. You would recruit them to hold up and, and to oversee logistics, development, HR, marketing, finance, PR. You would want this team to be cohesive and to work together. Perhaps you would round out your team with a light-hearted person as well to keep things lightly when things got tough, wouldn't you? Maybe you would recruit somebody that had military or combat experience that they would understand when things got dangerous how to create the right atmosphere to make the team work well together. In our text this morning, Jesus is on a mission. We find that in our our announcement when Jesus says that proclaiming the gospel of God, he is on the mission that God has called him to do, to present to us the ministry of him and what he is about to do in the life of the community. But he chooses 
these four before us. And what we see in the offset, he chooses four fishing men, meaning competitors with one another. It just does not seem like a logical choice, does it? In fact, we do know from the text that eventually Jesus chooses a tax collector, a doctor. He chooses not only these four from these competitive fishing companies, a zealot and eventually an embezzler. Jesus, did you not get the memo? Do you not know how to choose the qualified, the outstanding, the brightest, the best? In fact, a top-notch firm called McKinsey and Company did a survey to find 20 traits that are associated with top leaders. And they surveyed 189,000 participants in 81 different organizations around the world. And they looked at the, the factors that emerged out of these top leaders. What makes the difference between the super qualified and those on the margins? And what they found were these four things then that what they saw that in these four factors, it accounted for the 89% of these groups that they surveyed. They saw this. The first thing was a highly effective problem solving. People who could see problems, understand what the situation was, and begin to effectively find solutions to the problem. The second thing they found from this group of highly effective people were that they operated with a strong sense of orientation. In other words, they were very missional in what they wanted to accomplish. They had a very specific goal they wanted to go after, and they knew that they had this desire to accomplish that task. The third thing they found is that these highly effective people sought different perspectives. They were comfortable with people with different ideas, different thoughts. They didn't feel threatened when they came to them and said, I don't agree with you. In fact, highly effective people would say, I invite that because it helps me in my blind spot. It shows me where I am missing the point. They recognize that they don't have all the answers. And the fourth thing that McKinsey and company found is that these highly effective men and women supported the other. And you would think if Jesus was choosing the disciples for his missional task, that he would choose the brightest and the best. He would choose those who could solve problems effectively, that had a sense of mission and purpose, that weren't threatened with differences of opinions, and they supported each other, but... What we find is that Jesus chooses Simon and Andrew, James and John in this opening story. And he must have got it wrong. Thinking about our text this morning, for a first century listener, they would understand that if you inherited your father's business, that wasn't a step up. In fact, manual laborers were prized in the sense that they created things, but they were not the goal that one wanted to attain. In fact, in first century Palestine, the ideal career for a young Jewish person was to travel and follow a rabbi. You were the one that you emerged the top 
person of your Torah school. You understood the text. You memorized it. Your mind was sharp. And you found yourself to be amongst the brightest because you were the brightest. You shined. But these group that we are introduced today were not the brightest. In fact, they were working in the family trade. They didn't get picked for the basketball team. They were left behind and the leftovers. People that McKinsey and company would say to you, if you were looking for the right staff, don't choose them. They will be a mess for you and your team. Here are some other names we want to suggest to you. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 really needs to be understood in the backdrop of the previous verses to really get why Jesus chose the unqualified for the Missio Dei. If you look with me in your text, Mark opens up by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth Mark is introducing to his community what an invitation to the Missio Dei is. That this mission is not some foreign field far and away. That God is not saying to you, give up everything, go sell it all, and come to the mission field. Maybe he is doing that, I don't know. Mark is introducing that what started in Genesis will continue. It will have its end. This mission will continue whether you participate in it or not. And Mark is bidding you to say, will you come? Will you follow? Will you take a risk with Jesus in your life? Mark moves on and introduces us that a text from Isaiah, Mark is hearkening back to say, not only in the beginning the mission of God started, but it continues on through the prophets. Remember what Isaiah says, Behold, I send a messenger before you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark intentionally wants his listeners to know that although John the Baptist is a premier preacher, and perhaps the leader of the religious community of his time, baptizing people in the River Jordan, he is saying God's mission is continuing onward. We find ourselves introduced to the character of John, and I find this very significant because John understood very much what McKinsey was trying to say in their company John understood the supporting of others because he knew that this was not his ultimate mission. He understood his place in the mission of God. And when Jesus came onto the scene, he says, I cannot even untie your sandals. Why do you want me to baptize you? Mark is saying Jesus gets into the dirty water. He climbs into that water of life and he says, you can't do it, but I'm going to do it for you. You can't untie his sandals, 
but I still come to you. And I get into that water. And I flow down. And I come up. Because Jesus is the one anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we are told after the baptism that a voice from heaven comes that says, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And Mark uses the word in Greek to say the heavens were ripped open. Luke borrows that same Greek word to say in the temple, the the curtain was ripped open. God is doing something new here and introduces to us that He will send His Spirit upon His disciples. And then from there, we're told that Jesus immediately is driven out into the wilderness. Mark tells us It doesn't get any easier in life, does it? We grow old. We deal with aged loved ones. We deal with career choices, children issues, challenges in life, health issues. Life does not get easier for us. And Mark reminds us of that, that Jesus goes into the wilderness, a place where the early listeners would say, you don't go there because you don't come back alive. Mark cleverly tells us that he goes into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights to tell us that the children of Israel failed in their missional pursuits but what they failed in their missional pursuits to be a light to the nations. And God uses two two exiles before he returns back to say what they could not do, somebody else would do for us. And so our text lands on where we're at today to say now after John was arrested, it's like, Mark, you are just giving us bad news after bad news. I thought this was the good news of the gospel. But everywhere we turn, we're seeing that things are happening not to our preferences. In the mission of God, we understand that life is precarious, don't we? And Jesus assembles to us these vagabonds of disciples and says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I often think of these early disciples to give a CV of their work. Let's borrow from the text for a moment and unpack what they accomplished. These four that we're talking about. In Mark chapter 13, we're telling Jesus when Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple, they said, tell us, Lord, when is this about to happen? In other words, give us insider trading so that we will know how to hedge our bets. James and John are noted for their brazen request. Teacher in chapter 10, verses 35 through 45 We want you to do whatever we ask of you. That 
is brazen. That is bold. Teacher, Jesus, not your will, but my will. Jesus, teacher, not your will, but my will. And Mark invites us to say that the mission of God is not about our will, but discovering the will of Jesus in our life, a transformation that hits to our deepest core. Peter is undeniably prominent figure in Mark's gospel. He declares with remarkable position in the halfway mark of Mark's book, chapter 8, verse 29, he said, you are the Christ. But then he moves on when Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Peter's saying, no. No. Jesus, we've got a good thing going here. We got a good ministry going here. We have money and people and we are itinerating. It is a good thing you're not going to Jerusalem because I know if you go to Jerusalem, trouble is going to happen. Don't go. Peter doesn't stop there, does he? Here, Jesus chooses Peter who regrettably denies him three times, not only denying him but with curses. These are the disciples that Jesus chose. These are the ones that McKinsey and company would say they did not problem solve effectively. They did not operate with a strong missional intention, did they? They were seeking their different perspectives. In other words, they were undermining Jesus' ministry time and time and time and time again. And they certainly did not support one another. Why do you think Jesus chose these disciples to be a representation of what it means to be a a missional person? I submit to you what the mission of God is and is not. The first thing I want to help erase in your mind about Mission Sunday is it not star people going overseas that have their faith all together demonstrating that they're walking almost on the water of life. I assure you, my wife will tell you otherwise about me. My children would be first in line to say, not at all. But I think what Mark wants us to understand about the Missio Dei is that you don't have to be perfect to participate. And that's a challenge that the church in the United States faces consistently. Is a sense of perfectionism. A sense that you've got to have it all together on the outside. To show somebody that they can come to faith and trust in Christ. Almost as if we're submitting to them the Jesus lottery. That they scratch it off and they win the prize. And they have the dream life that Jesus made it magically happen for you. Jesus is not a guru. He's not a methodology. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in Christ the second person of the Trinity. We see in Christ who comes to us and says to us, you can't change your life, but I can change it for you if, if you participate in the Missio Dei. 
And you don't have to have it perfect. Years ago in our ministry, we were church planting and we had a, a woman in our community that was tragically murdered. And we went to go visit the community. Men were sitting on the left, women on the right. Incredibly sullen moment. As we were entering into to pay our respects, our community stopped and a few of the younger ladies in front of me said, I I don't want to go. I I don't want to go. This was intimidating. Everyone was sad. The woman died of tragic means. Being the leader and very tall, I said, I will go. I button my jacket. I walk in the center of that room. And I say in my Arabic, I hope you die. I hope you die. And I hope you die. I shifted one little word. Instead of saying, may God give you life, I said, God, take your life. I wondered why some of the women were laughing on one side, red to the face. I wondered why one man peeled off in laughter and then one stood up in anger and shouted at me and calling me names and saying I was cursing them. I failed that day. I failed in a very prominent way. But I assure you, that God's mission continues today amongst the peoples that we were with and share with you that today there is a church amongst them planted not because of my dramatic and wonderful efforts, my broken Arabic, my inconsistencies, but because God used broken vessels for His purpose in life. The mission of God and what it means and what it looks like is that Christian leaders, according to Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, says that the future of Christian leaders is to be called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerability. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. The great message that we have to carry as minister of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because what we have accomplished, but because God created and redeemed us in love and chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. So let me ask you, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Seriously. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to pass on to your children, your children's children? Do you want to pass on the dysfunction that you inherited and passing it on to the sins of the fathers, to the fourth generation? Or are you ready to participate in the Missio Dei, the struggles of life? The calling of life to say that what God desires from you and I is to become his conduit of love, acceptance, mercy to those around us, not seeking perfectionism, which sadly the church in the U.S. struggles with, but rather true grace in Christ, 
A grace that unhinges us, that invites us to this radical following of Jesus that reminds us that you with your rebellious heart, you with your secret struggles, you and I with our lack of faith, that he calls us and tells us that there's nothing, nothing, nothing to separate you from Christ's love. Jesus chose the unqualified. I'm thinking about in our mission work, we had a young woman, a Muslim woman who came to faith and trust in Christ. She came to me and said, my husband abuses me. He's very violent. What what, what do you do with that? We had no answers but to follow with her one day she told me the story she said you know I have many problems with my husband these are her words not mine the first time he saw the Bible in our house he said these are lies and he started to beat me he broke my nose still now he's hitting me But the word of Christ is in me and nothing will force me to stop believing in Christ. Once he hit me so hard, I couldn't breathe. I turned to the Lord and I said, Lord, you accepted the nails for me. And I turned to him and I said, even if you hit me, I will not give up. I will not give up on Christ. Even my little boy, once we were walking on the road and there was a fight in the streets and in Beirut, if a fight occurs, it's not between two people saying, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you. There were probably machine guns ripping on each other because there were different factions fighting because where she lived was a very volatile place. I was afraid for my kids, but my son said, Mommy, don't be scared. Jesus is with us. When we go to heaven, we will be with Jesus. Jesus loves the children, Mama. He loves me. And he's our Savior, Mama. She said he's six years old. I was scared for my kids. But they said, we're not afraid. Jesus is with us. People started to tell my husband that I go to church. And one day they started following me. And I wasn't scared. And I told them, Jesus is in my life. He is in my heart. And inside my heart, I prayed, Lord, I'm your daughter. Please let them go away from me. And she said, I sensed that fire went out and they left me, but they started to spread a bad rumor about me that I was demon-possessed. Her story doesn't end pleasantly. She eventually leaves her husband, but her husband eventually steals his children, her children, and takes them back to Syria. Today, if you meet her on that Mishino Dei, she's serving the Lord in a mountain village with a church planting team. Although she carries the nails and the scars of losing her children, losing her life, she will tell you to your face that she regrets nothing because of what Christ has done in and for her. Make no mistake, she's fighting for her children. She wants to get them back and she's doing everything in her power to do so. 
But I submit that story to you to remind you that God's mission overturns and turns people's lives upside down. And Jesus is inviting you on that mission. The question is, are you willing to leave your nets, the things that hold you back from that transformative power to participate in the Missio Dei? Christopher Wright in his book says, Our mission is nothing less or more than participating with God in this grand story until one day, one day he brings it to creation and to climax. And that day, Jesus will wipe away our tears. Today, will you follow? Let's pray. Father, as we think about your Missio Dei, we understand from Genesis to Revelation that you are on mission, that you call us to follow and to participate with you, that it's not about our perfectionism, but it's about what Christ has done in us and for us. And we ask this morning that you give us a renewed sense of your presence in our life. Touch our friends, our family, touch ourselves. Remind us that as we hang on to you, that you greatly hang on to us more than we can ever imagine or think. And help us to understand that it's not about people over there, but it's about your people everywhere, just like you and me. So we ask that you send us on this mission with this invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.